Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Jan Lin Matten. Jan and I have known each other for about six years now. He's the founder and partner at Emerge Education, one of Europe's most active seed funds investing in solving the skills gap and has been working on solving problems in education at Emerge for over 10 years. As a disclaimer before we start, I'm an investor in both of Emerge Education's venture funds. My name is Jan. Uh, I'm the founder and one of the general partners at Emerge. Um, and Emerge is a early stage uh, fund based in Europe, focused on uh, investing in companies that democratize access to opportunity. And uh, what that means is that we, broadly speaking, invest in companies that improve access to education, improve education quality, um, and then improve education outcomes. We're mainly focused on post-secondary education and adult education, uh, both B2B and B2C. Um, but really always harking back to that ultimate idea that we want to create uh, an impact and want to democratize access to opportunity. And then the kind of unique way that we approach it is that um, you know, our mission is to build the best first check for edtech founders. Um, and our thesis around that is, you know, A, we need to be relentlessly focused on the early stage. Uh, B, we are thesis driven. So we, we strive to be thought leaders and thought partners to so our founders in the specific sectors that we're focused on. And C, and most importantly, uh, we're community driven. So we have this incredible group of venture partners sitting around Emerge, uh, which Joshua, you're, you're part of, uh, who are very successful entrepreneurs, operators, and significant budget holders um, within the education industry who invest in our fund, help us source deals, help us diligence them, uh, co-invest with us and our best companies and sit on our company's boards and advise them. And it's really that group and the collective intelligence that comes from it that gives us an edge in uh, in the, the work that we do. So that's us. Yeah. Um, very impressed with everything you've been doing for the last few years as well. It's It's been a while, right? You've been doing this for like 10 years. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. That I've heard. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So so basically, I, um, I got started... Um, as you know, uh, when I graduated from, from Oxford and, um, that was, uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. It was 10 years ago. Um, and the, the reason I, the reason I did it is because at that point and still, you know, still today, I was very focused on how can I create the biggest impact possible through my career. And I, I came across this concept of social entrepreneurship. So this idea that you could combine, uh, making a profit with making an impact and there, thereby create systems that scale themselves uh, to create an impact. And I, I just found it fascinating and I knew I wanted to spend my career in this in this field. Um, and 
And then I realized I could either start one of these or I could be involved in helping start many of them. And by doing that, I could really scale my impact. And so I fell in love with this idea of, uh, at the time, creating an incubator for uh, social entrepreneurs. Um, and then it very quickly became focused on edtech specifically because we uh, you know, we fell in love with that particular problem set and we saw super interesting companies in it. Uh, and and Emerge grew from there. And um, you know it grew into uh, an accelerator program combined with an angel syndicate. We did deal by deal work for for many years, um, built a great team, and then eventually raised funds and um, evolved it into what it is today. But um, yes, it's been it's been an incredible experience. Cool. And uh, so I, d I did tell you in advance, right? There were two, three questions that I kind of gave you in advance. Uh, then there are a bunch of questions today that uh, that I will not have talked to you about. Uh, and one of those questions is generated by ChatGPT. And so at the end of the interview, I will ask you yeah. which one you think it might be. Yeah, of course. <laughs> would, would not expect anything less of you. <laughs> Has to be done, right? Um, yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, first question I ask everyone is, um, what is one thing that you believe to be true that most people in your industry would disagree with? I think the kind of most fundamental belief about Emerge uh, that most people in the VC industry would disagree with is that you can, in fact, create its <laughs> venture scale outcomes by investing in education companies. <laughs> and the reason most people disagree with that is that, you know, for several is, is several things. I mean, on, on the one hand, if you look at the past, you know, not that many uh, very big outcomes have been generated in the education industry. So there's a question of sort of, you know, why hasn't it happened yet? And then on the other, um, I think people make the mistake of sort of lumping so many different things into the category of edtech or education that you know it becomes very difficult to um, you know see the the business rationale for a lot of them because you know so we we invest in a very small subset of what's broadly considered the edtech market and uh, for a good reason because we we don't think the majority of what's happening in edtech is actually venture backable uh, but you know these things generally get lumped into one and so people people kind of think of you know, businesses investing in schools and content-heavy businesses, et cetera, which uh, don't really lend themselves to venture. So those are some of the things, the reasons why why people don't believe it. And the reason I believe it is because actually, when you think about it, you know, education technology companies solve like society-level problems. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, the, the levels of problems that we're thinking about here are, you know, on the one hand, you know, what what drives the economy? Well, the economy is driven by capital and labor. And you know, we we need to invest in the education of workforce labor in order to make it more productive. And so, you know, how does that happen? Well, it happens through through the education system. And then, you know, secondly, if you look at individuals, you know, what drives social mobility? Well, social mobility is driven by, uh, you know, opportunities to, uh, you know, access um, well-paying jobs and fulfilling jobs. And how how do you get get access to these opportunities? Well, you get it. You get them through great education. And so, you know, we we think um, you know, solving these kind of problems, you know, justifies building very very big companies. 
Um, so that's kind of at a macro level. And then if you look at it at a, at a micro level, um, you know, we think technology specifically has the potential to create very compelling impact on various different kind of micro problems that sit in the value chain of these kind of macro ideas that I've talked about uh, that lend themselves to building very, very big companies, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, improving access uh, against sort of a, a, a context of non-consumption, um, you know, to, to make it more concrete, you know, the, that there's a, there's a massive global skills gap. And part of the reason is it exists is because the education system just does not teach the right skills to people. Uh, you know, we, we think technology companies can really address that. Um, wh whether it's quality of education, getting, getting people really engaged with, uh, with content and, and, um, and their education experiences in order to drive outcomes or, or whether it's creating better pathways. So, um, you know, happy to go into sort of detail on, on very concrete ideas around these things, but you know, that's why we believe there are, there are, uh, you know, really exciting companies to be built in education that can drive venture scale returns and that justify not just individual investments, but a multi-fund, multi-decade approach to solving these kind of problems. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of VCs, uh, still still kind of believe the opposite is true and um, that creates an opportunity for us yeah and so <clears throat> going one level deeper um looking at specifically those areas where you do think there are kind of venture venture return opportunities which are the ones that you are most excited by the areas that you think kind of over the next 10 years are are the most prone to return those um those big bets yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, for, for us, the, the farm, you know, the, the most important area by far is uh, the global skills gap. So to, to explain that in a little bit more detail, you know, what, what the skills gap is, is essentially um, a disconnect between what the education system is producing and what the labor market is demanding, right? So uh, the, there is uh, a shortage of highly skilled labor in areas uh, for example, in, in technology such as data, clouds, uh, software engineering, etc. Uh, but but also around uh, you know uh, deskless work. Um, you know, one particular skills gap that we're uh, very excited by right now is you know the huge uh, gap in highly skilled deskless workers that can help with the green transition. Um, and this gap is getting bigger and bigger every day. Uh, because actually demand for these roles is growing really fast, but education is not not adapting quickly enough. And that can result in you know, what Corn Ferry estimates to be an $8.5 trillion uh, gap in uh, global output between what could be achieved if we solve the skills gap and uh, what is likely to be achieved in an absence of a solution by 2030. So that's sort of the biggest macro driver that's, uh, that's sort of guiding most of our investments. And yeah, you know, we we think that can be addressed uh, in many different ways. It's you know from uh, changing what uh, existing education providers, uh, especially universities, teach. You know, going going into universities, partnering with them, helping them partner with with employers to build uh, courses that are that are applied, project based, that are focused on these skill areas. Uh, to just increasing the supply uh, of education providers that do this kind of stuff um, and uh, making making uh, the delivery of this education more flexible uh, you know a lot of the 
uh, upskilling and reskilling that needs to happen is actually not people at the start of their careers. It's people that are in work uh, and that are either uh, you know basically starting to be driven out of work by automation. Um, or that are that are looking for opportunities to switch from dying industries to growing industries, but the way that education is catering uh, to these people is actually not fit for purpose. Uh, you know that they, they they need um, courses that are or or education services that are that can flex around their needs, their their existing families, their work, etc. That you know they don't want to go and spend three three years on campus, um, and um, a- and then lastly, it's about you know, bringing employers into the mix. So a lot of this is about realizing that actually, you know, this problem can't just be solved by education providers alone, but rather that employers need to take responsibility uh, for the development of the workforce um, as well. They need to invest in it and they need to, they need to build the infrastructure to start helping deliver some of this upskilling. And so uh, those are, those are some of the kind of concrete ideas that we're working on. What makes you interested in exploring kind of the employer university relationship in if you're saying that right now some of the infrastructure is no longer fit for purpose to or to deliver the skills required to bridge this skill gap um what makes you look at the current system to work with it rather than kind of more new or different approaches to the same problem like how, how are you thinking about the mix between between these two kind of working with the existing one versus kind of ones that are coming in from an entirely different angle yeah yeah no it's a great question and i i guess to to start with you know looking at our portfolio to date i'd say it's split roughly 50 50 um 50% companies that are working with the existing system to ameliorate it and to address some of these challenges, 50% companies that are trying to disrupt the existing system and go around it. And uh, in a way, we're sort of you know hedging uh, by by doing both. But to to more directly answer your question, uh, you know why why not just disregard the existing system and and completely focus on the second category? Um, I, I think the the answer to that is basically um, that the majority of demand, i.e., where do where do people actually want to go to get their training and their education, still, whether it's rational or not, uh, is focused on higher education as as the key destination for. Uh, for that mm. problem, and so, if you want to, you know, if you want to serve the millions and millions of people that are now getting, you know, being elevated into the global middle class that are desperate to get a high quality post secondary education, you know, the way to to work with these people and to meet their needs is not necessarily to try and educate them away from pursuing higher ed, but is to transform the higher ed offers they that are available to them in order to to both uh you know meet them where they are and to uh to actually provide them with the services that that ultimately will lead to the best outcomes um and you know the same is the same is true for for um for for global employers uh, i mean I, I guess the way to to simplify this 
it's sort of working with the existing system. It's more like pushing an open door uh, on the demand side um, than 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 trying to have to re-educate the entire market. And it, yeah. would it be helpful to go into an example on this? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so so one of our uh, companies is called Fourth Rev, and they uh, basically the the best way to describe them is that they provide a an an excellent alternative to a traditional master's program. And the, the way this alternative looks is that um, their courses are short. So they're, they're about six months long, where a traditional master's program is between one or two years. They're cost-effective. Um, so they, you know, they charge anything from like six to $8,000. A master's program could be, you know, as much as 20 or $25,000, um, some much more. Um, and it is uh, very employer aligned. So um, it is actually teaching you the things that will very likely lead to a career progression in some form, whether it's a promotion or a new job or a first job. And so far, so good. That sounds like a boot camp, right? Um, but the way it's different to a boot camp is that Fourth Rev actually partners with elite universities in order to brand these courses and to market these courses. And and also in order to get some of the academic rigor that um, you would get at a university in a master's program into these programs. So they, they infuse these programs with, with some academic stuff as well that's kind of co-delivered by the university. And so what that does is ultimately, it just makes the program a lot more attractive uh, to potential students because they, they now no longer have to make this choice between uh, a no-name boot camp, which you know, is basically a commoditized industry and, and very difficult to sort of get signal from, um, but but equally would provide probably the, the, the outcome and, and sort of the skill learning that they, they're actually after in order to get a career outcome that, uh, that, that, they're, that they're optimizing for. Um, and a master's program, which gets gives the signal top university, uh, but doesn't necessarily give you that, that education, but they can, yeah. they can get both in one. And that shows up in industry beating customer acquisition costs for these programs. And I think it's a great example of just how, like what I was talking about in theory there, about how you are pushing an open door shows up in real life. That's a really good example. Yeah. So it's, <clears throat> it's basically leaning into the current system while the rest of the world is still seeing it as the main source of demand, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And now kind of taking one step back and looking at your your personal life, um, kind of how you have developed, what what was the best learning experience in your life and uh, and why? Um, yes, so I think by far it's building this company um and you know, you were gracious enough to give me a heads up on this question so I, i've thought about why first of all let me explain actually what this learning experience kind of you know where it started and where it ended so it started with me uh you know with no track record no trust funds and no idea about what i was doing deciding to go and build a venture capital firm and you know, that, it, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and sort of 10 years later, it ended with 
you know, me still being at the very beginning of my learning journey in many ways, uh, but Emerge is one of the leading tech investors in the world. And what I've learned on the way is sort of two things. One is, you know, how to be a good investor. Uh, and, you know, that's like how to generate uh, proprietary deal flow, how to spot opportunities uh, that, you know, ideally other people aren't seeing, uh, to, how to win deals, how to negotiate the deals, how to support the portfolio, how to manage the investment, uh, the, the, the wider portfolio, how to fundraise, how to lead a team, how to hire, all this stuff. But at, at the same time, there is kind of learning about how to build the firm, like how to build a sustainable advantage that survives me. And, you know, the, the reason it's been such a good learning experience is because it was intense. I'm highly ambitious. My partners are highly ambitious. And, you know, we just really, really care uh, about being the best in the world. And so there's this constant sense of urgency and thus a strong motivation to go and be better, become better. Um, it's highly applied. Everything we learn, we can immediately put into practice. It's intensely collaborative. I'm working with other people to put these things into practice, to test, to learn. Um, and at, at times it's deeply reflective. Like when we're building you know, out our thesis, it's like long hours sitting in my bedroom, uh, with my eyes closed, trying to imagine the future of education, reading, thinking, etc., writing. Uh, and I think those are sort of some of the descriptors of great learning experience in general. Um, and you know, very, very lucky to, to have had this one. And maybe just the last thing I'll say on this is I think kind of my learning experience with the emerge has come in sort of two phases. The so phase one was probably the first three, four years. Uh, where I was largely on my own. You know, my partners were just coming into the, the business toward the end of that period. And the learning cycles were slow. And that was largely because, you know, venture capital by its nature is a is an industry where feedback cycles are very, very, very long. And so the, the, the way to learn it, you know, you can't basically uh, very easily learn about the quality of your investment decisions and, and such by looking at ultimate outcomes, you have to use proxies. Um, but, but, but what I've learned over time is that actually the, the way to massively increase the, the frequency of your, 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 your learning cycles is by bringing in experts, by having ac uh, access to people who've been there and done it before um, and to, you know, to work with those to build out our thinking about the industry, to um, build out our approaches to building the firm, to investing, et cetera. And so in the last kind of five to six years, you know, I've had a lot more access to some of the best brains in the industry, uh, both on the education front and on the venture capital front to help us do that. And so that's really increased the, 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 the feedback, uh, loop and frequency. Um, and that's maybe one thing I'd do differently. I'd somehow start, try and, uh, have that realization earlier. <laughs> you wrote at some point that today's education no longer provides the opportunities we need to. And I want you to expand a little bit about like, what do you mean with that? And why do you think it's so important? Oh yeah. Like obviously the broad trends over the last 70 years have been that, you know, access in, uh, Western democracies, but also all over the world to education has been, uh, 
has been increasing. Um, you know, we I think in the fifties we were at something like twelve percent. Uh, you know, higher education access. Now we're at uh, you know possibly um, to you know a level of access uh, of of higher education penetration that's maybe too high. We can we can discuss that too. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, similarly, primary education levels around the world have, have risen, secondary education, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all great things. Um, and of course, there is uh, an argument to be made that, you know, the purpose of education is to help you explore the knowledge of the world, build your curiosity, build schemes of knowledge that later in life, you know, form the basis against which you subconsciously, you know, make decisions and take, uh, you know, yeah, lead your life and um and those things are all true and in no way um am i saying that you know the only purpose of education is to is kind of like career utility um but i do feel that um you know career utility is should be a big component of it you know because we're we live in a world where you could argue that um you know Things are not necessarily going to continue getting better. Like you could argue that uh, you know, the, the 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 force of automation will eventually uh, dislocate a lot of people, put them put them out of jobs, or at least uh, you know automate away a lot of the tasks that, that they currently do. And it sort of poses the question: um, you know, what are these people going going to do? And at the same time, you have all these new opportunities that are being generated. But which where it's difficult to fill open open roles uh, and and find the skilled labor. So I, I see education as the obvious answer. Uh, so the education system yeah. needs to basically help these people over here that are being affected by automation access these opportunities over here that are uh, currently unfilled. And in that way, I'm saying uh, education is currently failing people. Okay. How do you think about the dynamics between? companies wanting to produce value and so doing whatever needs to be done to build the type of company that creates that value versus universities that kind of or higher education provides a pipeline of of people able to help with those types of challenges yeah i know i, I think so the incentives uh to create change against this context uh apply to every major stakeholder from government to employer to the education system, i.e. higher ed uh, schools, and then to individuals as well. And I think everyone has a role to play. Um, you know, I think government schemes like the UK's apprenticeship levy are a fantastic example of where a government can make a, a great impact uh, in, in terms of uh, moving the education system in the right direction. Um, of course, I think that you know, there is a economic imperative for on higher education institutions to adapt with the times or risk becoming slightly less relevant over time. Um, but there's also moral responsibility for them to do so. But as I said earlier, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest um, uh, things that needs to change is that employers need to start seeing themselves as as sort of an extension of the education infrastructure. And, mm. you know, one of our thesis, investment thesis, is that employers are not set up to do this, especially SMEs that, you know, don't have the, uh, the size of back office to be able to run internal academies and you know bring best practice into into the company uh, to ed educate their their workforces and so that's where uh, you know one of the kind of areas where we invest is in com in companies that basically build 
centralized education services that are specific to certain industries or niches that uh, you can then sell into employers to help them um, play their part. Okay. How do you think about the risks that get introduced by having more and more of this infrastructure kind of out of the hands of the individuals, right? So kind of universities adapting a little bit more, becoming better at producing these skills, then employers taking over and kind of providing the infrastructure. Um, how would you react against the possibility of, or, or the statement that this might actually lead to an environment where the where the individuals, even though they are, they're, they're being handheld along the journey. And if, if, as you say, we might end up in a place where some of these jobs are getting displaced through through automation and kind of we, we end up with a problem there. How will, without the infrastructure around them, these people at that point um, continue to drive value in their own lives, to, to continue to drive, uh, to, to make a living and, uh, and live, <laughs> if that makes sense. So are you basically saying... Um... <laughs> I'm presenting here some sort of vision where, uh, you know, I'm requiring the education infrastructure and employers to sort of handhold a person throughout, through their kind of lifelong learning journey. And, um, where's, where, where's the individual's responsibility in all of this? Is that basically what you're saying? So maybe if individual responsibilities is one thing, but I guess the, what are the is there an element that is missing that is really about um, lifelong learning, habit creation that kind of is intrinsically motivated versus extrinsically kind of pulled out of individuals either through a university system kind of or through uh, through workplace management? What is the best mix to get to the result where people are able to learn? but also are not dependent on the system around them, but somehow are able to take ownership of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's sort of one of the key questions basically. Um, and you know, don't think there is an easy answer to this one, but yeah, you know, essentially what you're talking about is, um, you know, all the information in the world is, is out there and available on the internet. And if you wanted to, you could be an expert in anything, you know, uh, within a matter of months or years, if you just applied yourself to, to this <laughs> information that's yeah. available. So why is it, why is it, why is, why do we have, why do we still have social mobility problems, et cetera? And obviously the answer to, to that is, um, that it isn't that easy. Uh, there are environmental factors that affect your ability to, uh, to engage with this, you know, maybe, uh, you simply don't have the time because you're you're looking after people or you're struggling to make a living. Um, you know, maybe you don't have the confidence um, to to engage with it. Um, maybe you've never learned how to how to uh, learn self, uh, autodidactically. But ultimately, I think it's just a question of you know we're motivated by um, to learn by 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 certain things that are just not present in, you know, in a situation where you're sitting in front of a laptop and, and reading blog posts by yourself, you know, we're, we're motivated by some of the things I was talking about earlier, about why building Emerge has been such a great learning experience for me, you know, things like, um, 
linking the learning to a real world outcome. Like I know that if I apply myself to this, I'm going to achieve this, uh, this thing I, I want, or, um, uh, you know, making learning, uh, social, making it a social experience, making it fun, making it, um, you know, something that, well, the, the adjusting the difficulty of the content I'm engaging with to exactly the, you know, the place where I am in my learning journey, et cetera. So, um, there, there are basically things about the design of the learning journey that I think can have a great impact on the motivation of an individual that's engaging with it. And going back to what I was saying earlier about kind of why we believe there are great opportunities for technology companies to make an impact in the world and, and achieve venture scale outcomes. I think some, uh, technology companies are dedicated to doing these things, um, and to create, uh, to use technology in order to create these kind of learning experiences. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge, it's a holy grail essentially, but, uh, achieving this could be extremely impactful. Right. Now, and so, I mean, you've now been doing this for over 10 years. Um, what are, what is one thing that you fundamentally changed your mind on? Something you believed to be true when you started in relation to education and learning. Right. Something that you, th you thought to be, that you, you kind of believed to be true back then that you now think at least decently different about, if not entirely yeah. wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so one, you know, one big one, uh, I think was, there's, there's, there's many, but one big one is, you know, I, we used to invest in sort of anything ed tech related. Um, and we had a, a broad lens to say, look, you know, if it's creating an impact somewhere in the education system, then, uh, you know, we're, we're interested, uh, a priori and we'll, we'll look into the opportunities and invest in the best teams. What we've learned over time is that actually where we're sitting with the kind of opportunities that are available to us with the network that we have and therefore the edge we can provide in terms of building companies and helping, helping entrepreneurs, um, we're best focused on companies that focus on post-secondary education and adult learning, um, in the main, and then we, we make some exceptions around that. So we, we've completely stopped investing in companies that sell into the K-12 sector, um, and that's not to say that you can't build great companies in it. It's just not, it's not something that, uh, you know, we, we believe in or we want, want to do. So that's, that's a huge one. Um, and then, you know, I think our, our model has just completely changed over time as well. Um, you know, this concept of our venture partners, um, was, was really not part of the initial vision for Emerge, but, but sort of has organically evolved. And it's, it's been something that we've really doubled down on over the last few years. Um, but it's, it's sort of learning, learning by doing and seeing just how big an impact this kind of decentralized approach to investing, uh, has had on us, um, that's made us change our mind about how we actually invest, how we build value, um, and sort of how we differentiate against others in space. Yeah. And, um, and what's one question you have today that you, you wish you had an answer to? Uh, one thing that I admit I haven't spent enough time on to even begin to answer, but that I wish some you know, crystal ball would just tell me is what is the, what is the right timing for setting up a, an Africa dedicated investment team? Because, you know, it is clear to me that 
the continent is sort of the next India and China in terms of the the equity growth story uh, <laughs> for in edtech. It it will happen, and at the same time, you know, when I spend time with uh, with entrepreneurs from the continent, you know, this the 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 signal to noise ratio is still very high, uh, very, very, very low. And, um, I'm not, I'm not seeing, uh, enough of a, of an opportunity that today to kind of fully dedicate myself to it. Um, but, but over time, I think it'll be necessary for, you know, a global, global early stage fund to have a presence there. And so the question is just when <laughs> now, now it feels like too early. But you don't want to miss the boat. You want to go in just at the right time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. If you if you find the answer, please let me know. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> when COVID happened, there was a very interesting experience I had, which is that, um, as you know, I started Mindstone literally whatever second day of lockdown. Yeah. And I still remember the first pitch that I went into just to get some finance uh, to make sure that we we could kind of go through through COVID. And it was actually with Carlos from Seacamp. And oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a very fun interaction because basically I I went through through the pitch and before I had even properly started, he said, "Wait, wait, let me stop you. COVID has happened." Whatever you thought you were doing surely can't be the same anymore. So how has your thesis fundamentally changed? And it was like this massive slap in the face where which was very, very correct. Obviously, like the world had changed, so why the hell would the, the-, the thesis you had before still hold? Um, and it's kind of stuck with me ever since. Obviously, I adapted a, a bunch of different things. Obviously, the company is different now to what I had, uh, would have thought before. But I feel that there is something similar to be said now with AI, which is that the last three months have seen a fundamental shift, at least in what people know is possible today. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to kind of give you that same question, which is how are you thinking about the landscape in education differently today than how you would have thought about it say three three and a half months ago yeah and by the way did you fundamentally change your thesis as a result of covid or as a result of other things <laughs> it accelerated <laughs> so it accelerated a bunch of trends that we had already been looking at and it it changed tactically how we thought about building the company because the first few years we knew that people were going to be at home rather than going on their commute. Yeah. So like we made the decision to go web first rather than mobile first because suddenly mobile usage dropped mm-hmm. um, because of commuting mm-hmm. time, stuff like that. But I definitely needed to have an answer to the question because basically every single other conversation going forward had the same question, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that was the that was the key learning for me. No, definitely. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're totally right that's... Uh, this this moment is similar, uh, at least in my view, mm-hmm. and as it's a really interesting question how how it will impact education broadly, and then how it, how it will impact edtech company creation and investing in edtech, and yeah, thinking about sort of education broadly. So the the, the first killer application uh, for AI or for 
let's say for ChatGPT, right? Because this will kick this whole thing off is obviously, uh, cheating on your homework, <laughs> yeah. which, um, which is having all these interesting effects is some schools like the New York, uh, school, this school's district, uh, you know, banning the use of ChatGPT. There's, uh, probably some, some more forward thinking teachers that are advocating actually using it. Um, you know, I think we'll go through this, you know, normal cycle of what happens when new technology is introduced to the world where, you know, there's panic, there's rejection, and then eventually it just becomes part of life. And we're, we're going to figure out how to work with it in education. And, um, you know, probably if we're, if we're asking questions in a few years from now, where it's possible to get a pass grade just by putting the question into ChatGPT, that we're asking the wrong questions, right? So I think it's actually going to potentially have really positive impacts on how we, uh, teach and now we assess by by forcing us to rethink these these kind of things so that's sort of i think what's happening immediately in the short term what everyone's talking about in education um but i think where it gets more exciting is uh you know seeing teachers starting to realize that actually they can use it to optimize their workflows <laughs> not just students realizing it uh, and yeah I, I was speaking to a teacher the other day who was moaning about how much how many like uh, essays they had to assess before the, um, you know, like that, that night or whatever. And then their kids got them to get out ChatGPT and ChatGPT graded the essays. <laughs> and, um, yes. And, and sort of a light bulb went off. Right. So it probably, probably was grading essays that were in the first place generated by ChatGPT. <laughs> 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 um, so, but no, but so teach, you know, educators more broadly, and I include tech providers that have a have an, a teaching element as part of their product and that as well you know are using it for things like creating learning objectives uh creating um a curriculum a lesson plan um mapping out a learning path for 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 a given learner given where they are at right now and where you want them to go etc and so it's creating all these potential efficiencies and um preparing for lessons or creating learning experiences or doing the learning experiences that are that are potentially exciting and that potentially have sort of wider impacts on on edtech um and then so to to get into some like concrete examples one area that i find really exciting to think about is assessment of knowledge and assessment of skills and how to use it there um so i've been speaking to this company that is building a uh, pre-interview candidate candidate assessment solution, right? So basically, rather than doing a screening interview, you send your candidates to this app, and they go through an assessment, and the assessments or the, the app spits out an, an evaluation of the, of the candidates that allows the hiring manager or the HR uh, person to basically interview fewer people, save time in the process, etc. Um, and all of these questions have been generated by experts, but actually, if you go to ChatGPT, and I've, you know, I've been spending a lot of time as almost every VC probably has, uh, and if they haven't, then they're not doing their job, um, and been playing around with this kind of stuff. And I've been asking it to generate multiple choice questions on certain topics that I understand extremely well in order to test the quality of questions that it comes up with. Uh, and it does a great job, but I think it goes even further because if, you know, do you know the, the concept of a diagnostic question? Uh, not enough, no. 
Um, so, so basically the idea that like the incorrect answers and of the multiple choices that you've got in the, in the question, give you an indication of the fundamental misconception that's leading to the incorrect answer. So that, like an example would be you ask a, a student for the, uh, you know, uh, the formula or so, for, sorry, for the, for the area of a shape and they give you, um, the answer that would have been the answer had you used uh, the the formula for calculating the area of a different shape than the one that you're looking at and then you know yeah. so they're giving you 15 rather than 30 and you know okay they're using the triangle area formula rather than the, the rectangle angle formula to, to answer this question now i know what misconception they have now i know how to remediate that right so th that's yeah. um, d uh, a, a diagnostic question they're extremely powerful in helping assess uh gaps in, in knowledge and helping personalize an approach um, for a, a class, but they're extremely hard to generate because you obviously have to be very smart about <laughs> each of the four answers, not just, you know, uh, sort of making making the correct answer obscure. Um, but the point is, ChatGPT was able to generate really good diagnostic questions. I, I, I was going to say that seems like a perfect area yeah. for ChatGPT. Yeah. 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 So. You know, this company I'm talking to about uh, for these uh, th th that's doing these kind of pre-interview screens. You know, uh, they're they're now exploring using uh, generative AI in the question creation process, which is going to have obvious impacts on sort of efficiency of the process, allow them to enter more verticals more quickly, but also actually it's really useful because you know a lot of these kind of solutions uh, get hacked by candidates really quickly. Like you, <laughs> if a solution like this scales, you end up finding the questions that are generated by its experts on Reddit <laughs> because candidates yeah. share what they've <laughs> what they've just been through in terms of their experience and then other candidates use that to prep and cheat whereas if these things were you know generated dynamically you obviously would uh, be able to circumvent that sort of thing so uh, that's an interesting application um, probably when it comes to assessment the even more exciting one is sort of trying to assess someone's skill level at you know, against a certain framework, purely on the basis of their language output, whether it's spoken or or written, um, and sort of by observing their work, being able to infer their skill level, and then being able to do sort of, uh, all sorts of other interesting things with that. And I know you've been playing around with that, but <laughs> would would love to kind of say. Get... I wonder where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I would would love to get your 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 take. Uh, on that, um, to me, that feels a little bit more tricky. Um, I've been speaking to this other company, uh, who they what they're doing is um, meeting summaries, right? And as I I promise this is related <laughs> back to this. Yeah. But basically, they they will listen to a call transcript and then summarize the meeting. And you know you know from using tools like Otter and F Firefly that you know. The, the transcript is fine that they generate, but w once they get into trying to summarize the meeting and sort of what were the pertinent things that were said here, what were the takeaways, et cetera, it's basically useless. You can't mm -hmm. actually, you know, get any value out of that. This company is trying to solve that by sort of teaching its tool how to chunk the conversation. So this is the part of the conversation where, you know, Joshua and Jan were talking about like, you know, where they were prepping for this uh, interview and they were just having like a chit chat and talking about, okay, how long do we want to go on for, et cetera. This is the uh, part of the conversation where Joshua asked that question 
And yes, that is still Jan answering it 10 minutes later. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this is the this is the part of the interview, uh, the the conversation where they were, you know, talking about next steps or whatever. And then once you've taught it how to chunk, you can then apply different methods uh, for assessing or summarizing each chunk. Like maybe, you know, a next ste step chunk um, is summarized in a different way than a conversation chunk about whatever. So applying it back to assessment, like if you're trying to figure out how good someone is at interviewing founders, you know, is this VC associate that's applying for a job with the Emerge good, good at interviewing founders, like you'd have to probably build something a little bit more sophisticated uh, in order to chunk the conversation and then teach it how to assess different bits of the conversation in order to actually give me a summary that I find intelligible and, and, and interesting rather than just feed the entire transcript of this associate like interviewing a founder to chat GPT and asking it to summarize it or asking it to rate this person. So that's kind of where I'm sitting. And I think that's probably an area where there is a lot of value to be generated and captured by companies that do this in a really smart way. But I know you have a slightly different view on this. So maybe let's have a debate on it. I'd, I'd love to kind of hear your, your perspective. I think that the for a very long time we have been talking about personalization in education and is consistently under delivered um yep. all of the various approaches whether that's through personalized assessment personalized teaching personalized learning all of all of the various aspects and i think one of the things that gpt seems to be good at is to tweak its output based on a set of parameters. Um, now, on the one hand, it is not perfectly accurate. And so this can only be applied to scenarios where accuracy is not 100% required. Like 100, uh, the, What I do think, however, is that too many people are getting caught up in the fact that it is not 100% accurate because mm. actually most teachers are not. So mm. you have lots of learning experiences where you are taught the wrong things. Um, so if it is right more often than it's wrong, and if there are, I, I would say we have, we have gotten past the point where now it is absolutely useful. And rather than trying to, obviously it's good to make it more accurate but i would say systems that try to build around the assumption that it is not going to be 100 percent accurate but to build in loops that help you find the inaccuracies spot them and deal with them are where you end up with really really interesting things so basically building systems that don't require 100 percent accuracy but still dramatically improve the learning process as you go through them. Those are, that's kind of where I think the space is, is now ripe to really build from. Um, so help, help me make it more concrete. Like, let's say I'm assessing, uh, someone's, uh, discovery skills in a sales call. So discovery skills are like asking really good discovery questions to understand what, you know, the needs of the prospect and figure out basically how to approach your, your sales, your sell, uh, plan to them. If I give a, a transcript of a sales call today and I ask it to just point out which bit of it were discovery questions or the, the part where it, it the, you know, it, it, there was a discovery conversation, 
it's it's going to not give a, a great answer. So how can it possibly then uh, rate the discovery skills? So, you know, I, I get what, your general what, point, but I'd, I'd love I'd love to kind of get a yeah a, a kind of a practical idea of that of, of what you're thinking there. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So, what makes you think that it doesn't discover great discovery questions? You have tried that and it didn't find. Yeah, so I think I think yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe discovery questions is, is the wrong example, but like as soon as you, um, I, th I think as, as soon as you have sl slightly uh, more jargony um, or your know, business specific logic, it it starts getting imperfect. Yeah, yeah it starts. Um, but yeah, to, yeah. It, it starts to mess up, and yeah, the yeah. so. In my experience, most of those problems are come from two sources. Either the source text is not formatted well enough in a way that is basically removes kind of spelling mistakes, removes kind of blobbing it all together, but having a clearly structured text, uh, maybe even indicating who is speaking at what point. Um, so if you're talking about a transcript, having labeled transcripts rather than unlabeled transcripts would make a big difference. And the second bit is around the prompt, is that depending on how the prompt is asked, I have consistently been surprised at how much of an effect that has. And so I would be mm -hmm. looking at refining prompts to get to a result that is more accurate. It won't be perfect. Again, I don't think we need to get to perfect. I think if you get to a seven yeah. or eight times out of 10 like hit ratio, you're able to make a very good starting assessment. Yeah, I think we're basically saying the same thing, like better labeling and better prompting is like another way of approaching what I'm talking about. So yeah, but better labeling and better prompting are things that are known quantities today. Like the um, there are yeah. apps out yeah. there that just help, help you label. So So I'd say... Yeah, and it's sorry, just to be clear, I'm not, no. yeah, I'm not, I'm not, when I was saying earlier, it gets trickier with this stuff. I'm not, I wasn't in any way trying to suggest that it's not possible. I'm saying this yeah. is where there's an opportunity space. Exactly. This is where companies can create real value because the average consumer cannot get the, the results, right? But a company can create the kind of system around chat GPT or whatever model they're using yeah. in order to get to a really amazing result. And that's kind of, yeah, that's the opportunity space uh that that i'm interested in um so yeah so just so, to kind of to, sorry mm -hmm. uh well i was yeah i was just going to give an example like um we have a you know portfolio company called fundamates um you know they're a chatbot uh which is you can access through whatsapp it's designed to um be a study buddy for people on low data plans who can't browse the internet, but you know, basically access the internet through through uh, WhatsApp. And um, you know, to date, it's been focused on making educational materials more accessible, like students use it to download past papers, to practice, um, to define concepts, uh, to help with maths uh, problems. But what it's kind of starting to um, be well, what, what users are start starting to ask for more and more and more is like, this is, this is my learning goal. Help me get there. Like help me generate the drills that I need to, to get there based on my knowledge. And so what they're building now is like trying to 
parse their own like proprietary database of all these past exams and you know and it's labeled data because it's it's not just the questions they also have like the model answers stuff hmm. and basically getting to a point where they can generate completely unique mock exams that are uniquely fitted to that student's current level and, and learning goal and and for that you know they you know, that chat gpt couldn't necessarily do that because they don't have access to the the data that sits behind uh you know a paywall or that's proprietary data around the actual exam questions and the model answers and the specific curriculum that student is, is studying for or in um that i think is a particular like an, like an interesting use case where they're obviously using the technology but then they're building their own model on top of it on top of their own data in order to create something super useful cool well so we went through a bunch of questions yeah one of them was ChatGPT generated. Oh my god! Do you have any idea what it might be? So, what were your questions? So, there's sort of beliefs that differ from the norm, best learning experience, unanswered question. Um, there was, what do I mean by education failing um, to provide the opportunities that people need? What What else did you ask? Yeah. There was um, the role of employers and kind of the role of um, and the role of people directly within yeah. the university employer um, kind of trifecta. The uh, we talked about employer university collaboration and how that was kind of uh, a way to to upskill. We talked about the areas of education that you are most excited about today. Why? Um, how your thinking has changed between over, over the last 10 years. Um, that was mostly it. Okay. So so my guess is that you fed parts of the manifesto to ChatGPT and then asked it, um, you know, how one might challenge it. And that it came up with something like, you know, this person seems to think that there's a big role for employers to, and universities to play in uh, solving education system level problems, but they're kind of not mentioning individuals. What about individuals? That was it. That was yes. the first one to actually get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I've been spending a lot of time with it recently in part inspired, <laughs> inspired by you, and it just feels like the kind of thing that it would say. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It was basically the the idea, okay, that um, employers' role within upskilling and reskilling, and kind of what's the what's the role of individuals within that? What was your actual prompt equation? Uh, I just asked it to generate ten um, non-obvious, thoughtful, divisive questions uh, based on the manifesto. Okay, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Fun stuff. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to see you. Speak soon. <laughs> Have a great day. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> the way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upskill at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity, and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Böhler, CEO at Mindstone.
and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.